We encourage you to open your Bibles once more this evening through our to our travels through the Psalter, and tonight to Psalm 114 in particular. Psalm 114, and we'll read it now from end to end. When Israel went forth from Egypt, the house of Jacob from a people of strange language, Judah became his sanctuary, Israel his dominion. The sea looked and fled, the Jordan turned back, the mountains skipped like rams, the hills like lambs. What ails you, O sea, that you flee, O Jordan, that you turn back, O mountains, that you skip like rams, O hills like lambs? Tremble, O earth, before the Lord, before the God of Jacob, who turned the rock into a pool of water, the flint into a fountain of water. Father, um, you came and you made your sanctuary among your people, we're told in this psalm. You came and dwelt among them, and we pray, uh, having come and dwelt among us in the person of your Son, and having come and dwelt in our hearts by faith, we pray that you'd come now and make your dwelling known with us again tonight by teaching us from your word and making your sanctuary with us in these moments together. We pray. In Jesus' name, amen. As we ponder this psalm together tonight, uh, one note that ought to stand out near the very beginning of our observations is quite simply the sheer power of God. The sheer power of God. Because just think for a moment or two about the physics involved behind the assertions that the psalmist makes here about his God. The sea, verse 3, meaning the Red Sea, looked and fled. The Red Sea literally split in half, you may remember, with a wall of water on one side and a wall of water on the other side and a pathway right through the midst. And 40 years later, and in the second half of verse 3, the Jordan River turned back similarly. And both of them, not because of some years-long project funded by the federal government and overseen by the Corps of Engineers, but in a moment, at the simple command of God, the sea looked and fled, the Jordan turned back. And then we read in verse 4 about the earthquake which took place on Mount Sinai when God gave the Ten Commandments. The mountains skipped like rams, the hills like lambs. That day, that's what happened. These mountains, particularly Mount Sinai, uh, bucking up and down like uh, a ram with its hind legs in the barnyard. And the mountains did so, not because of carefully placed sticks of dynamite and human engineering prowess, but merely at the voice and the presence and the holiness of God. The mountains quaked. And then in verse 8, we read about the water that gushed from the rock in Exodus 17 and again in Numbers 20, providing drink for God's people in the wilderness. And we know, uh, some of us, how arduous it can be to bore a well deep down to the aquifer so that the water actually really flows 
And when we know that, we marvel at the power of God who can open up a well large enough to serve over a million Israelite refugees and do it in a mere moment. And so, verses 5 and 6, What ails you, O sea, that you flee? O Jordan, that you turn back? O mountains, that you skip like rams? O hills like lambs? What ails these forces of nature? Why are they acting against their nature? The power of God who upholds all things by the word of his power and who can easily overturn them as well by the same voice and the same power. So this is one of the things that we should observe as we make our way through this psalm. And when we see God's miracles throughout the Bible scattered here and there as they are, the sheer power of God to make nature do what is unnatural. Here is God addressing himself in this psalm to some of the greatest forces of nature, water and rock, and harnessing them as though they were Play-Doh. You remember those little science kits when you were a boy or a girl that enabled you to make a tiny little volcano erupt with your own two hands? Well, God is the one operating the real volcanoes and the seas and the rivers, and the mountains too, and doing so with far less effort than you ever did on your science experiments. And we should tremble before him, verse 7, when we think of it, when we consider the sheer power of God in this psalm. But then there's even more to see here than just the sheer power of God, because God didn't part the waters God didn't move the mountains simply as a kind of scientific demonstration of what he's actually capable of doing. Psalm 114, in other words, doesn't describe a series of lab experiments, does it? No. God did all these things, we're told in verse 1, when Israel went forth from Egypt, the house of Jacob from a people of strange language. He harnessed the forces of nature in these ways during that time after the Exodus when, verse 2, Judah became his sanctuary, Israel his dominion. And we're told to tremble in verse 7, not just before the Lord, but before the God of Jacob. And I hope that by my pointing out all these references to his people, to Israel, to Judah, to Jacob, I hope you're beginning to see where I'm going with this. And that is to say that this psalm not only displays for us the sheer power of God, the power of God in and of itself, but in addition to that, this psalm shows us the power of God on behalf of his people. God demonstrating his power, God unleashing his power on behalf of his people. This psalm really is a record of just that, isn't it? The psalmist sets us in a historical context in verse 1 that has to do with the people of God. That time when Israel went forth from Egypt. That time that we call the Exodus. And then the psalmist proceeds to highlight four of the mighty acts of God, not done in a lab, but done in the wilderness on behalf of his people as they made their way through that wilderness and eventually to the land of promise. That's the basic summary of this psalm. It presents four of the high points, four of the powerful acts of God on behalf of his people as they made their way through the, through the wilderness after their exodus from Egypt. 
And the effect of observing all of this power on display should be to say both, look at how mighty is the Lord, and look at how he cares for his people. Look at the power of God, and look at the care of God for his people. See how he harnesses that power for his beloved. So let's just look briefly again at each of these mighty deeds of God memorialized in this psalm, and let's think about how each and every one of them was done on behalf of his people in the wilderness as they made their way from Egypt to the Promised Land. And we'll take them, these four acts, chronologically rather than in the specific order in which they appear in the verse of the psalmist. So let's think, first of all, about deliverance. In verse 3a, deliverance, the sea looked and fled. The waters of the Red Sea parted in Exodus 14. Moses stretched out his hand over the sea and the Lord swept the sea back by a strong east wind all night and turned the sea into dry land. So the waters were divided. That's what verse 3 is talking about. The sea looked and fled. The waters parted. But why? Why this great miracle? What ails you, O sea, that you flee? Verse 5. Well, what ails the sea is the power of God. But why is the power of God breathing down the neck of the Red Sea in this way? Well, you may remember because Pharaoh changed his mind. Pharaoh didn't want to see all of his slave laborers slip away so easily after he had initially let them go. And so he marshaled an army of chariots to chase them down in the wilderness. And he bore down on them, and they found themselves hemmed in with their backs against the Red Sea and no human way of escape. And that is why the Lord swept the sea back by a strong east wind all night and turned the sea into dry land for the deliverance of his people, for their rescue, for their salvation, so that they might have a pathway out of their troubles and an escape from otherwise certain death. And so at the Red Sea, we see the power of God for the deliverance of his people, for their rescue. But then they go on a little way after that great deliverance, and in Exodus chapter 17, we find that there is no water anywhere near their camp at a place called Rephidim. And according to their custom, and perhaps according to some of our customs as well, they grumbled, they murmured, they complained about what they perceived was not being provided for them. And in spite of their groaning, and because of their need, God made provision for them, as the psalmist records here in verse 8, who turned the rock into a pool of water, the flint, into a fountain of water. And so if the parting of the Red Sea was about deliverance, the bringing of water from the rock was about God's provision in the midst of the wilderness. He turned the rock into a pool of water. And we find the same series of events happening again in Numbers 20. The people again Complaining, God again providing once more water out of a rock. And so what we have in verse 8 is not only a striking portrait of God's power, but of his provision, 
of his concern to meet his people's needs and of his ability to do so, even in the most barren places of the wilderness. And then we follow the children of Israel on a little further and find them camped in Exodus 19 at the foot of Mount Sinai. And God comes down on the mountain in order to announce to them his Ten Commandments. And we read that, quote, there were thunder and lightning flashes and a thick cloud upon the mountain and a very loud trumpet sound so that all the people who were in the camp trembled. Now Mount Sinai was all in smoke because the Lord descended upon it in fire and its smoke ascended like the smoke of a furnace and the whole mountain quaked violently. The whole mountain quaked Violently, or as we have it here in verse 4, the mountains skipped like rams, the hills like lambs. And why this display of God's power? Well, as a reminder that this God who had delivered his people and who had provided for his people is a holy God and that the laws that he is about to give them from the top of this quaking mountain in Exodus 20 are holy too. And neither God nor his laws are to be trifled with. And so the quaking of Mount Sinai was done on behalf of the people too. God did it. God harnessed the forces of nature in this way so that people would understand the holiness of their God and the holiness of his law. So are you following the wilderness chronology so far? The the sea looked and fled for the deliverance of God's people. Water gushed from the rock for the provision of God's people, and the mountain quaked in the wilderness as God delivered a holy law to his people. And then finally, after 40 years, the Lord parted the waters again, verse 3b. Not this time the waters of the Red Sea, but the waters of the Jordan River, which stood as the eastern boundary of the promised land, the land which he promised on oath to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. The Jordan, verse 3b, turned back. The Jordan turned back. This time, the water's parting not just for Israel's deliverance, but for her rest. Her rest. The Lord parted the waters of the Jordan so that his people might cross over into the land of promise and leave behind all their wanderings, all their temporary dwellings, all their hardships in the wilderness, and find rest in the land of God's providing. And so here is God's power on behalf of his people during their sojourning in the wilderness. He parted the sea for their deliverance. He split the rock for their provision. The mountain quaked as he gave them his holy law, and the Jordan turned back to make way for their rest. The power of God on behalf of his people. There's a sheer physical power involved in these things, but there is a love and a concern for his people that draws it out and makes it come forth. And as we observe that power tonight, on behalf of his people, I need to remind you that God is the same yesterday and today and forever. I need to remind you that God is still displaying his power on behalf of his people as they make their way through the wilderness of this world. There is still 
within God a sheer power that can move mountains and part seas, and there is still in God the same love and concern for his people to harness that power, to unleash that power when it is necessary on behalf of his people. And along those lines, there are great parallels in this psalm between how God acted on behalf of his people of old and how he still manifests his power on behalf of his people today. Because we too, in a manner of speaking, find ourselves wandering in our own kind of wilderness, don't we? Like the Israelites, the world that we roam right now is not our home, is it? And indeed, the world that we are in, something like a wilderness, is under a curse. And it is so often so spiritually barren. And so it's not easy to live the Christian life in this wasteland, and nor is it meant to be. We are meant to pass on our way to glory through many tribulations, Acts 14, and living all the while a very temporary existence. The Israelites knew that these wilds between Egypt and Israel weren't their resting place, and so they didn't act like they were. They lived in tents instead of putting down roots. They kept moving instead of settling in. And that's how the Christian life is meant to be lived as well. Indeed, even if you live your whole life long in a single location, you must live as though Cincinnati were not your home, as though it were just a stop on your journey to the promised land, because that's all that it is ultimately. Here in this body pent, absent from him I roam, yet nightly pitch my moving tent a day's march nearer home. That's how the hymn writer James Montgomery put it. Nightly pitch my tent a day's march nearer home. That's how we're meant to live the Christian life. Like the Israelites in the wilderness, as mere pilgrims, as aliens and strangers living merely in tents, but daily marching toward a better country. And yet, while we're here, while we traverse this wilderness for 70 or 80 years, what we find is that God is working on our behalf. God is unleashing his power, just like he did for the sons of Jacob, even in the wilderness. So that you might call this last portion of our time together the power of God on our behalf. We've thought about the power of God itself, and then we said the power of God is, is brought forth on behalf of his people, but now we're going to talk about the power of God on behalf of us, his people. And let me suggest to you that he's working, if you belong to Christ, he's working on your behalf. He is harnessing his power for you in precisely the same ways that we just uncovered in Psalm 114. Think it out with me. The first thing we saw God doing for his people in the parting of the Red Sea was providing for their deliverance from Pharaoh and from certain death beside the sea. And isn't that a remarkable portrait of the gospel? Because we have a great enemy too, one who, like Pharaoh of old, desires anything but to let us escape out of his clutches. And yet, though we know that the enemy is there, we are powerless against him. We are powerless against the devil and his hordes in and of ourselves. We stand with our backs against a deadly sea, and Satan has nothing to do but to keep on herding us towards it and to our destruction. 
The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy, right? But God has provided a way out. God has provided deliverance, not by the staff of Moses this time, spread over the surface of the waters, but by the cross of Jesus. Not by the parting of the Red Sea, but by the opening of Christ's veins and the spilling of his red blood. We are delivered. Hebrews chapter 2 says, Since the children share in flesh and blood, he, Jesus himself, likewise also partook of the same, that through death he might render powerless him who had the power of death, that is the devil, and might free those who through fear of death were subject to slavery all their lives. Listen to it again. Since the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise also partook of the same, that through death he might render powerless him who had the power of death, that is the devil, and might free those who through fear of death were subject to slavery all their lives. Now don't those words echo the experience of Israel? Here is one who has the power of death, And here are people who have been subject to slavery all their lives and who are afraid to die. And yet the author of Hebrews is not talking about Pharaoh and the book of Exodus. He's describing the condition of the whole human race, you and I included, under the dominion of Satan. The devil has our backs against the wall, and apart from Christ, he has the power of death over us. But in Christ... The verse tells us Satan is defeated. Because of the cross, because of the parting of Jesus' flesh, according to Hebrews 2, our enemy has been rendered powerless. And at the last day, we will sing of Satan and the lake of fire the way the children of Israel sang of Pharaoh in the Red Sea. I will sing to the Lord, for he is highly exalted. The horse and its rider he has hurled into the sea. Deliverance from the enemy of our souls. That is what we have in the gospel, just as the Israelites had it in their exodus from Egypt. And let me say as well, as a bit of an aside, that in the gospel, we have deliverance not only from our adversary, the devil, but we have deliverance from the wrath of God against whom we've set ourselves up as his adversary. Why didn't the waters that destroyed Pharaoh come back over the top of the Israelites as well? Why doesn't hell engulf us the same way as it will the devil? Grace. Simply the grace of God in Christ. God has provided us with deliverance. He has provided a way of escape, not only from the clutches of Satan, but even from his own wrath, which our sins have piled high above our heads like the walls of a sea so that the wrath which falls on others does not fall on us. Christ has absorbed it, and we are therefore delivered. And yet, having delivered us, like the Israelites of old, God has left us for a season in the wilderness, just like them. He hasn't brought us to our home yet, And that means that the Christian life, like the Israelite life in the wilderness, is not yet what it will be. And yet in the midst of the wilderness, we, like they, can be assured of God's provision. And not only in temporal terms, but in terms of our spiritual needs as well. 
Hasn't God provided for us the manna of his word and the water of the gospel for filling our bellies and quenching our soul's thirst? He has given us his precious and magnificent promises on which we may live for many days and even years while we await the more bountiful feast that is to come. And from whence do these promises gush? Well, like the waters of old in verse 8, they gush from a rock, namely from the rock who is Christ. As many as are the promises of God, Paul says, in him they are yes. And so you see that we are drawing our water from a rock as well. In fact, that's how Paul pictures Jesus, even in the wilderness wanderings of the children of Israel. We have seen them twice drinking water from a rock. And Paul, talking about that, says it was like God had a rock following them around in the wilderness, a rock that just kept being there in the right place at the right time to meet their need. And he says the rock, 1 Corinthians 10, was Christ. The rock was Christ. He was following the Israelites around in the wilderness, making sure they had everything they need. And if he was providing the physical water of old, and if that physical water was good, how much better the refreshing words of promise that pool up around him for the believer. You and I may sometimes murmur against God, but just the same, he is providing us everything we need in Christ, everything to tide us over until the day when... The faith shall be sight. Water from the rock throughout all our wilderness wanderings. And the rock is Christ. And so in Christ there is deliverance for God's people. And in Christ there is provision for them as well. All throughout their sojourning in the wilderness. And then in Christ there is also still God's holy law. Delivered from the quaking mountain of old, as we read here in Psalm 114.4, and then expounded upon in Jesus' famous sermon preached from another mountain in Matthew 5, 6, and 7. Do not think that I came to abolish the law or the prophets, Jesus said. I came not to abolish, but to fulfill. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not the smallest letter or stroke shall pass from the law until all is accomplished. Whoever then annuls one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same shall be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever keeps and teaches them, he shall be called great in the kingdom of heaven. And so the law of God stands, and indeed as Jesus preaches his famous Sermon on the Mount, what we find is that he shows that those commandments that God gave from the quaking mountain at Sinai, those commandments actually cut deeper than we may have first supposed. And so Jesus, both at Sinai and in his incarnate ministry, is not only deliverer, not only provider, but also lawgiver. Sometimes you hear people say that Christianity is not a set of rules. And that's true in a very important sense, namely that you don't become a Christian, nor do you even remain a Christian by keeping a list of rules, not even the Ten Commandments or the Sermon on the Mount. And praise God for that, because if it were not so, none of us in this room would qualify. So it's true that Christianity is not a set of rules, 
but a vital union with Jesus Christ. And yet that doesn't mean that Christianity has no rules, nor that Christians aren't meant to keep them. Jesus didn't come to abolish the law. And remember what he said about the rules. Whoever then annuls one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same shall be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever keeps and teaches them, he shall be called great in the kingdom of heaven. So God's holy law, delivered on Mount Sinai, expanded or expounded, I should say, beautifully by Jesus, remains. And just as God expected his people to keep it in days of old, so we too in our wilderness wanderings are to be characterized by obedience to God and his holy law. So I hope you see it so far. The pictures of the Old and New Testament peoples of God run right parallel to one another, don't they? Here are two sets of people delivered by God and set apart as his own. And for both of them, he makes provisions all throughout their wilderness journeys. And for both, he not only makes provisions, but he has expectations encapsulated in his law delivered on the mountain. And then for both, there is finally rest. Rest. The wilderness journeys culminate in rest. Rest for the sons of Jacob in the land of promise after 40 years of wandering. Rest from all their temporary campsites and all the difficulties of the wilderness. Rest on the other side of the Jordan, verse 3. And yet that rest was not a final rest. Even the rest of the promised land, marvelous as it was, was not ultimate. Joshua, we're told in the book of Hebrews, could not provide them with that. They couldn't have their final rest, the author of Hebrews tells us at the end of chapter 11. They could not have their ultimate rest apart from us. But with us, both they and we are awaiting a day when we will sojourn no more, when we will dwell temporarily no more, when we will pitch our tents in the wilderness no more, when we will pant for the day of glory no more. And once again, this rest, this great day comes to us in Christ. It's he alone who can get us safely over the Jordan of death, isn't it? And it's he alone who will lead us into that great and final land of promise that will be the new earth. And when we see it, When we stand on those eternal shores, all of the waiting and trudging through the wilderness of this world will have been worth it. Deliverance, provision, law, and rest. Here is our progress through the wilderness of this world. Here are the mighty acts of God in Psalm 114. Here was the experience of Israel of old, and here is the wilderness experience of every child of God since. Deliverance from the enemy, provision all throughout the journey, a good law to live by, and a promised rest at the end of the way. And when we see these gospel works of God, the response of our heart should be to follow him, in his deliverance and to thank him for his provision and to trust him for his provision 
and to obey his law and to long for his rest and the response of our hearts to a God of this kind of power and care for his people ought to be the same response that Mount Sinai gave in Exodus 19 and that the earth should give in verse 7 to God's mighty acts of old. Tremble, O earth, before the Lord, before the God of Jacob.